Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And the defense lawyer says to me, oh, Gary, spare me the nonsense. You can get a focus group to indict uh, a hamburger for murder. I mean, those mean nothing. And I said to him, dude, you know, you don't get it. You don't do focus groups to impress me. Right. We uh, feel much better about a focus group if we've lost it. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, your host with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, especially now that I turned my microphone on. Yes, so. yes. That's always one of the important things in order to be, uh, to be heard. <laughs> things are looking up. And it's a mistake that we've made uh, many times before <laughs> on the show. We just like to keep it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, Yvonne, let me introduce our guest today. Uh, we have a fantastic guest, and we were just talking a little bit ahead of time about how uh, we have some uh, similarities between the case that he worked on and some cases that we, uh, that we have. But our guest uh, th- today is Gary Fox. Gary is a partner at Stuart Tillman, Fox, Bianchi, and Kane in Miami, Florida. And you can look up Gary at his website, STF, as in Frank or Fox, uh, STFBlaw.com. Again, that's STFBlaw.com. Gary, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for asking. Well, let me, uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, I mean, you have, uh, uh, have been uh, just doing uh, fantastic work for a long time. And I should, I mean, one of the first things I should mention about Gary is he's got over a hundred verdicts and settlements in excess of a million dollars. So that is uh, quite a track record. But uh, Gary has been a board certified trial lawyer uh, in Florida since 1983. He, uh, in 2013, was named as the trial lawyer of the year by a Florida uh, uh, Boda, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, he's been named uh, among the best lawyers in America, uh, of course, on the super lawyers, and then uh, top lawyers in South Florida. Uh, Gary is also a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, which is a a very selective organization, only 100 members nationwide. Uh, He's been... uh, Um, He's a member of the International Society of Barristers, and he was inducted into the Law Dragon Hall of Fame in 2017. And I should mention, among your uh, clients that you've represented, uh, Gary, are uh, Terry and Michael Schiavo, um, which was uh, uh, we all remember from when uh, Terry Schiavo uh, went into a coma and you represented them in their medical malpractice case. You've also represented Floyd Mayweather. Some, and Samari Roll, um, and uh, have just had some tremendous results on behalf of all your clients. And um, I, I, I won't rub it in, Gary, but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, the game that we had just this weekend, we were glad to see that it turned out the way that it did. <laughs> I should, I'm, I'm ribbing Gary a little bit because he is a graduate from the University of Florida. Um, Gary and and of course we are uh, we're from Georgia and, and we had a big game this weekend between the two the two schools. Gary, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Stephen. By the way, uh, you know I've been a University of Miami Canes fan forever, and I thought you were <laughs> talking about the Canes versus FSU. Oh yeah, yeah. Game won by the Canes and FSU, and uh, so that that's what I was. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but you have our coach down there now too. So, uh, so yeah, the the, uh, the Hurricanes are uh, are doing well. 
Um, well, Gary, let's talk about this case that you tried. This case uh, was tried back in 2007, and it involved the death of Levi Slayton. Uh, the name of the case was Slayton versus Professional Pediat. Uh, sorry, Professional Park Pediatrics PA and Dr. James Penrod, who is a pediatrician, and it was tried in Leon County, Florida, uh, in 2007. Uh, Levi uh, was born premature uh, on August 16, 2002, and um, he. Uh, his mother was also uh, had an infection at the time of his birth, which can uh, subject him to uh, infection and, and means that the doctors need to have a sort of hypersensitivity uh, towards uh, a possible infection. Uh, he had hyperbilirubinemia. I may have screwed that up. <laughs> hyperbilirubinemia. I knew I was going to screw that up. I, I was trying to work on it before we started. Uh, <laughs> did I pronounce that somewhat okay, uh, Gary? Uh, you got it right, Steve. <laughs> All right. Well, so so he had. Uh, it's essentially high bilirubin, and and uh, and uh, I think a lot of people recognize this normally as uh, as jaundice uh, when when your uh, baby is born. Uh, they can be sort of have a yellow tint. My older daughter actually had this and had to go under uh, the had to go under the photo light uh, for a day. And uh, and usually it uh, can be a, a relatively minor, but he um, unfortunately. Uh, Levi had uh, very high levels of bilirubin and they were rising and this is a sign of inf an infection uh, in the child and um, essentially the pediatrician who was, who was treating him um, didn't hospitalize him, uh, didn't get him uh, on oxygen that he needed and didn't really uh, get him the treatment that he needed quickly enough and, um, and so unfortunately uh, f six days after Levi was born um, he was feeding with his mother and, um, the way I understood it is, is essentially went limp, uh, stopped breathing. Um, and they tried to do CPR on him. The, uh, EMTs were able to resuscitate him, uh, but he had suffered a severe irreparable brain injury and, um, they had to, uh, eventually, uh, discontinue life support and um, and Levi passed away. So, it, you know, what went from uh, the happiest day in the Slayton's lives, uh, that's uh, Dole and Julie were the parents, um, six days later uh, was a devastating day. And they lost their, their firstborn, uh, Levi, uh, basically because they missed the signs of an infection and, um, and from the rising levels of bilirubin. Uh, and I should say that the total verdict, uh, and, and, and we'll have to talk about this a little bit, uh, Gary, but the total verdict uh, on behalf of Julie Slayton, uh, the mother was $2,260,000, uh, and Dole Slayton, the father, was $1,113,000 for a total verdict of $3,373,000. And as I understand it, the, you're essentially looking at the damages in this case from the uh, emotional pain and suffering that the parents went through in losing their in losing their child. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's right. I think Dole's damages were actually a little a little higher. I think the total okay. verdict was over four million. But uh, okay, the, the basic damages, uh, Steve, under Florida law are the uh, pain and suffering uh, of the parents as a result of the loss of the child and the loss of the child's consortium affection and so forth. 
Okay. So, I mean, in, you know, in Georgia, we look at it from the uh, standpoint of the decedent um, for wrongful death. So in Florida, you're looking at it from the, um, uh, the uh, beneficiaries or the people who are uh, the family. Exactly. Okay. Well, this is, this is such a sad case. And I mean, there, there's a lot about this that I didn't know that I had to um, Google, in, including Billy Rubin. Billy Rubin, is that really how you Billy, say it? Billy Rubin, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's also one of those cases that really scares me because this started as early as when uh, Levi was first discharged from the hospital and whether he should have been discharged from the first place. And I think so many people, and it seems to be happening more frequently, maybe I'm just more attuned to it, um, you know, both both babies and adults seem to be getting discharged from the hospital too soon or that's that seems to be sort of a recurring theme that you're seeing that people are getting sent home when they're really not ready to be sent home but this is obviously you know the worst case scenario and such a sad case well it, it is and you know if if adults are sent home prematurely they can talk and tell people that they feel bad and things are getting worse but when it's a six-day-old baby you know, he can't communicate like that. So the dangers of discharging a baby prematurely are much greater than those involved in discharging an adult prematurely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and that's one of the things that's hard about these cases for, you know, uh, from a doctor's standpoint and why they have to have their uh, index of suspicion so high is that uh, a six-day-old uh, may not show a fever uh, if they're, show, if they're uh, becoming infected or may not show the typical signs of infection. Uh, but one of the clear signs in this case was that, uh, was that the rising bilirubin levels, uh, along with the fact that, uh, that his mother had uh, had an infection at the time of, of birth, uh, meant that this likely was an infection, and that's in, indeed what um, uh, led to his, uh, his death uh, six days later. Yeah, and I think the, um, you know, one of our themes in the case was, and we try to use this in all of our cases, is how easy it would have been for the doctors in this case to do the right thing. I mean, it wasn't the kind of situation where uh, a little baby comes in and his head is cracked open and, uh, from an automobile accident and there has to be a pediatric neurosurgeon who does complex brain surgery to try to repair the damage. All that had to be done in this case was for Dr. Penrod to say, this baby's bilirubin is rising. He's having trouble breathing. His parents have driven an hour to get to my office. I'm going to put him in the hospital. And all he had to do was pick up the phone, call the hospital, local hospital, say, hey, this is Dr. Penrod. Uh, I got a baby here, six days old. He's got a substantially elevated bilirubin. You need to admit him monitor him and keep me posted. And that's all it would have taken. 30 seconds, 60 seconds on his part. Mom and dad take him to the hospital and that's all that Penrod had to do. And, and I think that when, you know, when juries understand that you're not asking a lot of a doctor in a particular case, it becomes easier for them to find negligence. And uh, they did that here and the same applied to the first doctors who saw Levi in the hospital, all they had to do was say, look, let, 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 let's keep this little boy for a couple of days, see what happens with the Billy Rubin, and, um, and, and if it stays the same or goes down, we'll discharge him. If it goes up, we'll do the Billy Light thing, and 
uh, uh, and figure things out. All they had to do was say, look, let's keep them for a couple of days. Again, nothing heroic, nothing dramatic, just very simple stuff. And I think the jury got it. I mean, really, when you talk about it in those terms, that it would have been just a phone call to get him into the hospital. And, there, and there's really no reason not to do that, uh, you know, because you need to assume, you know, when you're doing your differential, when the doctor's doing their differential, assume the worst first and then until you rule that out. And the easiest way to do that is get him in the hospital, give him the treatment that he needs, and you can start ruling things out and make sure that he's uh, stable and get his uh, Billy Rubin under under control. But I I, I saw that in your closing argument, and I I, I really like the way uh, you made that argument in uh, in saying this wouldn't have been difficult at all for the doctor to do. And I, I guess I was wondering, was there evidence on why? I mean, was there evidence of of any sort of pressures on the doctor to not admit patients into the hospital? Uh, no, <clears throat> no, there was no evidence of, of that at all. And our point was that. There's no risk in sending the baby to the hospital for observation, but there's a heck of a lot of risk in not doing that with a baby like this. Right. And, and what good logical reason would you have for not doing that? And then, you know, Dr. Penrod said, he said, well, you know, the baby came to me and, and, and he was a very, he was a very happy bouncing baby. Well, give me a break. Uh, uh, the parents drove an hour to bring him to you with breathing problems because he was happy and bouncing. Well, hell no. Right. And we had a picture of the baby at the time and he looked anything but healthy. And, um, and, and they, I think got a little annoyed with, uh, Dr. Penrod when he said, you know, the reason I didn't take vital signs was because I remember putting my hands on this baby and the baby feeling warm. I said, doctor, doctor. Really? 150,000 examinations you've done over the course of the last five or 10 years, and you happen to remember this particular one, and you're putting your hands on them, and that's what you're telling this jury five years ago, you, and you remember the baby feeling, feeling cool? He says, yes, that's what. Give me a break. That may explain why you don't take a temperature, okay? But why the heck then do you not measure the baby's respirations when you've admitted mom has taken the baby there because of potential respiratory problems. Why not take a pulse? Why not take a blood pressure? And so the jury, I think, got a sense for, uh, for, for Dr. Penrod kind of making it up uh, as it goes. And during the course of the trial, the defense kept referring to him or introduced him to the jury as the dean of pediatrics. Of Leon County and, and Leon County's were Tallahassee, the dean of pediatrics, and in fact, he probably, probably was. Uh, I remember during jury selection, the defense lawyers said, "Well, who knows, uh, Dr. Penrod and uh, 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 and and probably 30, 40 percent of the venire of the jury, uh, potential jurors, raise their hands. Uh, oh. They knew him. That, that was that, that was not helpful for us, but." Right. Um, you know, our pitch was, if he's the dean of pediatrics, he should have known better. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really <laughs> great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? 
I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Right. It, well, and was he, was it Dr. Penrod that either I, I'm not, I, I saw this in your closing and I'm not sure if this happened at trial or in his deposition where um, he'd gotten confused and essentially was, was saying that it was a baby that was carried to term. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, uh, he was asked uh, or our expert was asked questions about, well, you're not criticizing Dr. Penrod's exam. You're just saying he should have diagnosed this. Our expert said, well, actually, yeah, I kind of am criticizing the exam because uh, it's clear that he didn't uh, uh, give this child the attention it deserves because he didn't even understand uh, uh, that this was a premature, not a term baby. He writes in his records, uh, term baby, and that's just flat wrong. And you treat a term baby differently than a premature baby because a premature baby's at a heck of a lot more risk. And so that was... Uh, uh, that was part of it. And then the lack of vital signs was also something that we, um, we didn't hit on until, until later. One thing uh, I, I don't think I mentioned to you guys that uh, increased the, the degree of difficulty for the case was that um, before we tried it to verdict, we had two mistrials. Uh, the right. first one about two, two years before the verdict when uh, – uh, the judge, um, uh, we, we couldn't get a jury. The second one, about a year after that, we, um, we'd gotten through our entire case, put on our entire case, and the judge just got angry at all the lawyers. Both of us had moved for mistrials for different reasons. And finally, the judge said, okay, Mr. Fox, you've asked for a mistrial. Mr. Dennis, you've asked for a mistrial. Ms. Santa Maria, you want a mistrial? I'm granting the mistrial. And we wanted oh, wow. the judge judge whoa but that was it so the defense had seen our entire case oh my gosh yeah went back up there to try it the third time and that was the bad news for us the good news was that um we had seen their cross-examination of our witnesses and we had seen them point out some soft spots in our case that we really we kind of knew about, but didn't maybe pay enough attention to. But seeing the way the defense had cross-examined all of our witnesses, we started looking for ways of maybe altering how we were going to try the case. And so we did. We did. And the case that ultimately went to verdict was substantially different than the one that uh, the defense lawyers saw the first time around. And they really didn't quite adjust to it. It was like they were still defending the case that they 
that we tried uh, a year and a half ago. So it worked yeah. out. It worked out. It worked out well for us, I think. Yeah, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to try, I mean, trying any case is hard, but trying the same case again is very difficult. Uh, we've actually done it when, uh, I mean, well, I, I hate to talk about my mistrials, but I've mistried a couple of cases. And uh, But the, the worst is, is when you get a hung jury and then you got to go back and try it again. But we always try to come up with a way that we can try it a little bit differently. Um, and so I think that's, you know, just really so important when you're um, – uh, putting on the case again is to, is to, you know, learn from what you saw and learn from, uh, you know, what the jury was doing as much as you can and then, uh, and adjust. And it sounds like you guys did that great. Do you remember any specifics as far as how you changed, uh, the, the case between the first one that you tried and then the, the one that you got the verdict on? Um, yeah, well, we placed much less emphasis on the discharge from the hospital in the first place and much more emphasis on Penrod and the failure to hospitalize because that really became the strength of the case. And the other thing that we focused on um, uh, the third time around was, you know, you're always looking for ways to make things easy for the jury, to make things understandable. Because if you can, you know, juries are like the rest of us. If you can give a jury an easy way to reach the right result. The jury's gonna appreciate that and they're gonna do it, you know? So we spent, I've spent a good part of the last 40 years thinking of easy ways or ways to make it easy for the jury to see things our way, to avoid the complication, avoid the morass. And the way that um, uh, in this case, the thing that we, we lit on uh, was something that any jury could understand and that is that if this baby had been rehospitalized, well, we started off by pointing out and having all the experts testify that what ultimately did him in was uh, was the pneumonia that was diagnosed mm-hmm. on autopsy. The pneumonia produced a lack of oxygen. Well, juries can get the concept of a lack of oxygen. So uh, our whole focus at the trial became Penrod's failure to hospitalize this boy, because if he had hospitalized this baby, the overwhelming probabilities are that if he had stopped breathing, he would have been in a monitored bed, the nurses would have been all over it, he would have been intubated, he would have gotten enough oxygen, he would have survived, because we asked every expert, uh, okay, doctor, do you know, uh, have you ever had a patient who was timely hospitalized for an infection that died because of a lack of oxygen? Our experts said no, their experts said no, and, and, and thus um, um, it became very easy for a jury to say, well, gosh, all they had to do was get him back in the hospital. Plaintiffs say he died of pneumonia, some of the defense experts said he did, others said he had a cardiac issue, others said it could have been God knows what, but if he's in the hospital when it happens, He's attended to, regardless of what you believe the underlying cause was. And they never really could come up with a really good answer for that. And um, also some of their experts, I, I'd forgotten about this till I reread the closing. Several of their experts said he should have been hospitalized. And of course, our question to the jury is, why do you think that their experts would have said that? Because they know right. that hospitalization for kids like this 
can save lives. Um, yeah, and I noticed... I noticed that there was uh, quite a bit of, or at least from the defense side, it seemed like that uh, one of their big parts of their defense was to try and say uh, that the cause in this case was not due to pneumonia, but was due to some other issue. And I, I, I saw that you, you, uh, you know, pointed out how much the defense kept talking about uh, accidental suffocation or overlying that, that the mom might have uh, uh, laid on top of him, but then brought in this expert to say that it was a cardiac issue, even though it was some sort of mysterious cardiac issue. Um, and that, and that can always be so, you know, difficult in these cases, how you, how you face causation. Um, talk a little bit about how you, uh, how you addressed the, the causation argument, because it seemed like they were really trying to throw everything out there that they could to say that this was anything. But, and I, th I think they also argued that, he even though he wasn't even if he had been in the hospital he would have died anyways is that right uh yeah they argued that and 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 nobody fortunately bought it you know we, we explained to the jury that um you know there's a reason they bring in one doctor to say it's cardiac another one to say it was maybe overlying another one to say it's unexplained uh that none of this makes any sense and so i asked the jury you know you got to ask yourselves this is the defense doing all this raising all of these issues. Are, there, are they trying to bring the truth into the courtroom? Are they trying to make this case medically understandable for you? Or are they trying to confuse the heck out of the issue? And the reality is they are trying to confuse this issue beyond all recognition. Why? Why are they trying to do that? And I cited the old um, trial lawyer's adage, and that is that because a, a negligent defendant's best friend is a confused jury. And all right. of a sudden, you know, you can kind of see the lights and bells going off in their head. And yeah, and, and that whole overlying business, oh my gosh, that was worth uh, probably a million or two of the verdict because right. um, on top of them screwing things up. And, and what we kind of argued was instead of coming in and doing the right thing here, and that is admitting a mistake and saying, let's talk about what's fair, you know, for the parents. They come in and bring witnesses to testify effectively that mom, uh, uh, mom's actions killed the baby. Now, really, yeah. do that in this case, uh, uh, with all these parents have been through, and we had a great grief expert to talk about the PTSD and how, you know, there are all sorts of, there's no good way to have a child die, but some are worse than others. And when the child basically goes limp in your arms and the dad is doing CPR and can, can taste five years after the fact the fluid from the baby's mm. mouth in his, oh, God. Uh, you're going to turn around wow. and blame these parents? Really? And then, you know, you know, you go on for a couple of days of trial blaming mom and dad. And it's your last witness. You call this um, pediatric infectious disease guy from New Mexico to say, no, it wasn't overlying. It was cardiac. Hmm. Well, folks, I mean, really. So I, I, I think that there was a component of the jury being pissed off because that verdict, the, re the reason I sent that case to you guys, that I thought it might be of interest to you, is because um, back at the time the case was tried in 2007, I think the highest verdict for the death of a child in Leon County was $750,000, $800,000, something like that. Uh, this jury returns a verdict of $4 million, which is, I think it's still the highest verdict 
for a child in Leon County. And, um, and the damages, you know, were, uh, were obviously uh, horrific, but a lot of people would think that, well, you know, and I wasn't really happy when I found out the parents had had another child. After right. Levi, yeah. You know, but, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them, you know, please don't have any more kids. Of course not. So they had, uh, they had another child, Mallory, who was just great. She was perfect in all respects. And the defense kind of argued, well, you know, these are great parents and they're focusing their attention on Mallory and, uh, you know, giving them uh, a lot of money won't, uh, won't help. And, uh, you know, all, all that stuff. Well, our grief expert said, and I think he did it very effectively, that having another child doesn't help uh, uh, this kind of situation. If anything, uh, it can make it more difficult because they realize that, um, that this little girl ought to have a big brother there to protect her and to love her and to be with her and so forth. And the parents, you know, every, every time the little girl reaches a milestone, they think, what would Levi have been like at this, mm-hmm. you know, at this point in time? And every holiday, they um, they see they see the little girl on the floor opening up her Christmas presents and think, well, you know, there ought to be two of them. There ought to be two of them there. And so um, I think the damages, even though um, Levi was only six days old at the time at the time he died, you know, the jury got a sense for what a horrific impact this had had on the family. And, and they were, they were, I think, a little angry uh, with the defense. So, uh, so I thought that those things were, uh, might be of interest to you. And before, before we argued the case, the night before we met with some lawyers in Tallahassee, guys I knew uh, who do our kind of work and said, uh, what, uh, what do you think we ought to ask for uh, from, from, from the jury? And <laughs> there were a range of opinions. Uh, uh, one guy thought, you know, we couldn't really ask for any more than 750000 per parent. Another guy thought, you know, if you ask for any more than 250000 per, per, per parent, you're going to piss the jury off and they're not going to like it and so on and so forth. Uh, we asked the jury for $2 million each and that's what they gave us. And uh, I basically thought that the advice that we'd gotten, while well-intentioned, uh, was just wrong. And uh, if you're going to tell a jury that what's happened to these folks is the worst thing that can happen to a mom, <clears throat> the worst thing that can happen to a dad, you're only going to put a value of 250000 on it. My sense was that the jury was going to, you know, be thinking that that's, um, you know, see some incongruity there. So, um you know, we figured we had to uh, go for the gusto, and uh, and the jury didn't slow down for it for a minute. In fact, you know, I uh, second guessed myself. I should have asked for more, maybe, um, <laughs> because they accepted what we uh, uh, what we recommended. So uh, that worked out. That worked out well. Right. Well, and um, to go back for for a second, but but you know, related to the you know the trauma that your clients went through and then these mistrials. Um, I think we've all been in the position with our clients where, you know, they want to seek justice, they want to seek answers, but while their case is going on, while their case is pending until it's over, I know it can feel for them a lot of times like 
um, just reopening the wound over and over and over again. And, and obviously this is something that, you know, is going to affect your clients for the rest of their lives. But how did you handle with them this kind of basically them having to go through trial or, or at least starting trial three times? Well, uh, the, the answer is, um, we got to do this. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unhappy for you. Um, but uh, I think that what we did kind of minimized uh, the stress on them because when we had people talk about the sensitive issues, uh, our grief expert, for example, we asked him to, we asked the parents to leave the room. Uh, they were not there for uh, the damages part of my closing argument. They heard the first part, the lie, but, but we always ask the people to, uh, in death cases especially, to leave because you're talking about how this is going to be uh, an anchor around their necks for the rest of their lives. And right. try as they might to get rid of it. Uh, uh, the human mind doesn't work like that. And uh, uh, they were both on various types of antidepressants. And uh, so, and our, our grief experts said, look, you know, this doesn't go away. People like this uh, who have this traumatic, terrible thing happen, every year it's going to be the same thing. It's going to take a variety of different forms. Uh, one form is seeing little Mallory uh, on the floor at Christmas time. But every year, and there's nothing you can do about it, there's going to be the birthday of Levi. Yeah. There's going to be the day he died. And uh, there have been studies that have shown uh, uh, they studied survivors and parents in particular and measured vital signs in the days and weeks leading up to the anniversaries of birthdays, leading up to the anniversaries of death. And they've seen a noticeable rise uh, in vital signs because it just elevates the uh, the stress and the anxiety wow. of having to face this date again and again and again and year after year after year. So um, this is something that, uh, you know, that we, uh, we bring out in these cases because a lot of people uh, have heard the expression, time heals all wounds. Well, it doesn't, <laughs> uh, yeah. especially in a case like this. And, uh, you know, if you tried enough of these cases and you get the right experts, they, uh, they explain why that's just uh, not the case. Um, uh, does the pain get a little bit less intense over time? Sure. Does it go away? Hell no. Uh, especially when you, you know, you've got a family, a big family like they did. And they're always uh, around family with kids you know, the same age is what Levi would have been. Interacting with these kids is, is awkward for them. And that's just another one of those reasons why the pain doesn't go away. So, you know, if you got the good grief expert who explains that, um, it goes a long way towards, uh, towards uh, helping to produce a, a, a fair verdict. Because in Florida, the life expectancies uh, both the baby and the parents are put in evidence. And I think it was 50 or 60 years in this case for the parents. So they're entitled to compensation for each of those 50 or 60 years. And, you know, some lawyers like to kind of do a per diem argument on a, 
you know, what's it worth on a daily basis or yearly basis. Uh, we didn't do that in this case. We just um, decided the way to do it was to recommend a number uh, and uh, explain why we felt that was a reasonable number and tell the jury, look, you know, that number may be too high. Some of you may think it's too high. Some of you may think it's too low. But whatever you arrive at, give that to them. Don't compromise these folks. They've been compromised enough. And, uh, you know, we had a jury that kind of uh, got that. And, you know, Leon County was not a good place to be trying these medical malpractice cases. Right. Of course, it's a capital of Tallahassee. And every year the doctors uh, come up to Tallahassee in their white coats and they whine to our legislators about how unfair our system of justice is. And they get a ton of publicity year after year after year. And so the entire venire of, of uh, Leon County has just been inundated with all of this tort reform nonsense. And uh, it's been going on for long enough that a percentage, significant percentage, believe it. So you're battling that on top of uh, everything else. And then in this case, to have to try the thing the third time, you know, <laughs> it was just, uh, and, we, and we, tried, we tried very hard to, uh, to settle the case. And uh, we went to mediation. Because mediation is required in all Florida cases now. And, uh, you know, we put on a, I think, a, a respectable, presentable presentation on why, you know, we thought we might win the case. <clears throat> and they came back uh, with an offer of zero. Wow. <laughs> didn't offer didn't offer a nickel in mediation. Uh, did not offer so we figured we're gonna we're gonna get to trial and they're gonna offer some money and we'll be able to shut this thing down. Get to trial, don't offer a nickel. Get to trial the second time, they don't offer a nickel. Get to trial the third time, don't offer a nickel. They don't offer anything during during jury selection. Uh, uh, or while the jury is deliberating. So, um, and I think the reason the last witness they called, and I don't know if you picked up on this in our in a closing, but <clears throat> the last witness they called was this fellow, uh, Rodetsky from uh, New Mexico, a very, very bad guy, very dangerous guy. And the lawyer for Dr. Penrod had used him as a defense expert in the last two cases he tried to verdict. And the juries in both those cases, this jury didn't know about it, but I knew about it. Um, the juries in both those cases returned defense verdicts. So they figured that uh, he, was gonna, he was gonna come east and uh, blow us out of the water as well. And, and I, uh, I, I looked at what he had done in those cases. We got the transcripts and there were good plaintiff's lawyers in those cases, these guys were not, uh, they were not hacks and they just got, they just got uh, chewed apart by this guy because he uh, is very smart, intellectually bankrupt, uh, but exceptionally well qualified. He was, I think like one of the only guys around who was board certified in pediatrics and in pediatric emergency medicine and in pediatric infectious diseases. And all of those things had a play 
in our case. So if you just look at the certifications, he was more qualified than anybody. Um, so it was a um, uh, it, it was bizarre uh, on their part. And Pendron only had a million dollars in coverage, and we um, uh, but under Florida law, we have I don't, I don't know if uh, George I think Georgia has mm -hmm. the same thing bad faith uh, bad faith law. So if if uh, you know we've given them multiple opportunities to settle the case for a heck of a lot less than a million. At some point, we'd have taken three or four hundred thousand uh, wow, because man. the track record of malpractice cases in Leon County was so bad. There had not been a verdict for a patient uh, uh, against a healthcare provider in Leon County for 12 years before our verdict. And that was what we heard in mediation. And that's why they're not offering anything. And Mr. Dennis, the defense lawyer, had never lost a malpractice case in Leon County. And, you know, they tell us all that. And I said, okay, well, I get that. But can we, like, talk about our case? You know, talk <laughs> right. about the facts rather than historical verdicts? I mean, you know, that string has got to be broken sooner right. or later. And we did. Yeah, I, I, you, you definitely did. And I, I can't imagine how frustrating that would be for um, – you know, like as lawyers, we know that that's what happens, that that your venue plays into it, the lawyers play into it, and, and that plays into the numbers that's offered or what they're throwing around at mediation. But as clients, as these parents who've, who've lost a child, to be hearing that there's just no offer and that the reasons for that have nothing to really do with the merits of their case, I can't imagine what that must feel like for them. Yeah, we we call it um, we call it the um, or we, we we describe it as for them venue is a complete defense. Yeah. No. It, and uh, you know, and and you know, I mean, how, how do you blame them? They've they've got this. Uh, there hadn't been a verdict for a patient for twelve years. Uh, the defense lawyer, one of them, had never <clears throat> lost a malpractice case in Leon County, and he'd been practicing as long as I had. Um, so, you know, you understand where the uh, insurance companies are coming from. But, uh, and, and I think the way that they looked at it is, you know, these folks, uh, the Slaytons are nice people, but they've, uh, they've gone on to have another child, they're getting out with their lives, and what's the most a jury is going to do for the death of a six-day-old baby? You know, six-year-old is one thing, 16, but a six-day-old baby they have a perfectly healthy child a couple of years later, and uh, that's that's what yeah. you got. Yeah, I was wondering. Uh, you know, I saw the the uh, data in there about Leon County not having a medical malpractice verdict in a, a long time before you tried that case, and I'm just wondering how did that? Uh, how did you approach Fawadir, knowing you were in a county that? Uh, didn't have a very good track record on medical malpractice cases and probably had a, a fairly conservative jury. What, tell me how you, tell us how you, um, you went about picking the jury there. Yeah, well, Steve, we didn't do anything really different than in any other case. Um, you know, we, we didn't talk about prior verdicts, but we, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, how some folks, you know, would find it difficult to, um, uh, to return a verdict, um, um, against, uh, a pediatrician, for example, uh, and we made no secret of the fact that uh, Dr. Penrod had been around for a long time. Some people feel that uh, somebody's practiced medicine in this community for 
30 years um, have some difficulty returning a substantial verdict against such a person. Uh, how, how many of you folks feel like you might uh, hesitate or have some uh, reluctance uh, to do that, even if the evidence showed that Dr. Penrod was negligent and his negligence was a cause of Levi's death? Um, you know, how many of some people feel like uh, the parents in this case, uh, uh, Julie and Dole Slayton, um, should not be suing for the wrongful death of their child. Some people are just really kind of uneasy, unhappy with that concept. Uh, I know I've got some folks in my family, you know, who feel that way. Uh, how many of you folks feel that way? Raise your hands. And once you get the hands raised and you tell them, you know, it's okay and you're gauging, and they're out right. under Florida <laughs> law, uh, that is a challenge for cause. So the, you know, the real trick here is to get these people to be honest with you and try to get rid of uh, the people who are just going to poison your jury because uh, all it takes is one. And uh, we've seen it time and again. So we spend a, a heck of a lot of time uh, uh, preparing for jury selection. And, uh, you know, we also do focus groups. Yeah. Uh, we did some focus groups in the case. And they, the focus groups, came back favorable to us. So that gave us, you know, some hope that, uh, that we were on the right track. Now, were we crazy about going up there to try the thing for a third time? The, the answer is no. But at least we felt like we had some, uh, some cause for optimism. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. You, you know, that brings up a question for me, and I, it's something I struggle with in different cases. But, you know, when you have a, uh, you know, when you're trying to get a case resolved or, um, you know, putting on your presentation for mediation, um, and the defense tries to tell you that, well, they feel pretty confident about their defense because of, you know, their, their experts or because they, um, you know, are in a good venue for them. Uh, how much do you uh, tell them about you, the, the results of your focus group? Because um, I struggle with, you know, what to tell them, of, you know, whether I focused it and what the results of that have been. 
you know, that, that's, a, that's a heck of a good question. And it varies case to case. Most times, uh, I don't tell them uh, about the results. Um, we, uh, <laughs> uh, we had another case up in Leon County uh, that we resolved earlier this year. And it was against the same hospital. And we had done focus groups uh, up there because the, um, the death, uh, the guy, the, the, the person we represented was a physician from, uh, from South Georgia who was taking the TMH because of some problems. He was, he was a board certified urologist. And, um, and there, were, there were some issues because he was a physician. And whether or not he did enough to protect himself, you know, was something that we wanted to test and see how, uh, see how a, a focus group jury reacted. Well, they reacted very favorably uh, to us. So, you know, we're kind of in the negotiation phase. And I tell the lawyer, you know, we'd, um, you know, we'd done these focus groups and the jury just slam dunked the hospital. And the defense lawyer says to me, oh, Gary, spare me the nonsense. You can get a focus group uh, to, uh, uh, to indict uh, a hamburger for murder. I mean, those mean nothing. And I said to him, dude, you know, you don't get it. We don't do focus groups to impress people. Right. Right. We do focus groups. We do focus groups. We're much, uh, feel much better about a focus group if we've lost it. We don't do it. So that we we use it as a negotiating tool, uh, and you want you know, but that's kind of the way that they uh, yeah. some of them look at it, and, and they're invariably people who don't do that. But the reason I don't do it more often is because I am very fearful that if I do do it, that might cause them to go out and start doing it if they right. haven't done it before. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, and but you're exactly right. I mean, when we do focus groups, we try we all put our heads together. We try to put on the very best defense that we can come up with, and uh, and you know, and really uh, you know defend the case strongly. So when you get a focus group that comes back and isn't putting much weight into the the defense and is giving you you know uh, positive results, it makes me think one of two things from the focus group. One, am I missing some part of their defense? And maybe we need to think about it some more. Or two, maybe their defense just isn't that good. And I'm putting too much weight on it. Yeah, well, th those, those are the two explanations. And uh, I think that um, uh, if you spend the time properly laying out the defense, and, and of course, you know, focus groups are like jurors. You know, you, you, you need to be sure you're getting is close to a cross-section of the community that's comparable to what you might end up with uh, in the jury. Because uh, if you don't, the results can be, can be, can be skewed. But, um, but I think if you're, uh, you know, if you take some care and uh, try to get a representative sample of the community, I think it's, uh, it's an it can be an invaluable tool. I know it's helped us. Oh, yeah. Um, I wanted to circle back to, to two things. Um, that, that we had kind of touched on earlier. Um, the first was I just wanted to make sure that we made it clear because when I was reading the closing, I did not know what overlying was. And I thought it was, I honestly, I, I really didn't know what it was, but it's such a, that has to be like a term that like defense lawyers made up because it's so like, it's such a gentle way of saying what they're actually suggesting, which is that 
the the mom basically like rolled over and accidentally suffocated the baby, right? Well, uh, uh, no, actually, what okay. it is is mom is mom is breastfeeding the baby, and uh, and she falls asleep, and the baby's so small that one of the one of the breasts may, uh, if if she nods off, kind of accidentally cover the baby's nose and mouth and, and, and lay over the baby's nose and mouth. And, uh, actually it's, it, it's, it's, it's a medical term. It was first raised as a possibility by one of the doctors at the hospital. And, uh, and of course the defense then just jumped all over it and seized on it. Uh, and you know, you, you gotta, you, you got, you gotta be careful if you defend in these cases. You, you better be pretty damn sure if you're going to uh, imply that mom killed this baby, uh, that you've got a heck of a lot of evidence supporting that. And you sure don't want to spend half the trial accusing mom of killing the baby and then have as your last expert somebody come in and say, mom, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. It was this mysterious cardiac cause. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and so related to that, um, and the whole causation issue. Um, one of my questions was, I know that you were able to confirm um, the pneumonia through the, through the autopsy. And I was wondering, because I think a lot of times we'll get cases or potential cases where um, an autopsy wasn't performed either because of what the parents were going through, you know, at the time and they didn't want one or it felt disrespectful or, you know, whatever. How how crucial was the autopsy in your case? Uh, it was it was it was really pretty pretty important. Um, there were some references in the medical records uh, when Levi was was admitted, suggested he had pneumonia, with no other um, um, potential causes of death. Uh, but um, uh, but for the autopsy. I think it would have um, uh, made it more of a speculative issue for the jury. Once you get uh, the county medical examiner saying that it's pneumonia, um, although she was, you know, between us girls, not the brightest bulb on the tree. (laughs) She was just in her deposition. She was just like a loose cannon, you know, depending on which way the ship was rolling. She was shooting cannonballs at the plaintiff or it had rolled back and she'd shoot some at the defendant and nobody knew where it was going to go off. So nobody called her live and uh, just read the deposition. Right. So, uh, but the autopsy report itself came into evidence. So that was very helpful. And, you know, in these death cases, we, uh, unless you've got a pretty clear cause of death, if there's no autopsy, we kind of, you know, uh, weigh that heavily against taking the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I noticed you, you, uh, went out and got a perinatal pathologist to essentially uh, go over the autopsy results and, and to confirm that that's what was uh, done. And so, um, you, you know, um, I didn't, I actually didn't realize there was pathologists that were that specialized that, uh, you know, focus only in children under 30 days old. Uh, yeah, and he was he was a he was a pretty impressive guy actually. Um, it was only the third time he testified, and he was uh, uh, he was from Turkey, and he was an odd looking guy. He kind of had a scruffy beard, and his head was hair was going off in all sorts of different directions. 
past, he had never seen anybody look quite like this guy. But he was ridiculously well qualified, was a professor of pathology at uh, Brown University Medical School, and uh, spent his whole life studying causes of death um, uh, in, the, in the period, in the 30-day period before and after birth. So, you know, these guys, you know, you want to do that for a living, you know, right. not what I choose. But uh, this guy was uh, uh, ridiculously well qualified, and he took the slides and basically confirmed uh, the favorable ports of the autopsy report um, uh, uh, for us and gave us the opportunity to argue that this was the most qualified guy in the case to talk about the cause of death. Yeah, and, and really, I think, gave you a chance to undermine uh, Dr. Radeski, who, uh, who had, as you said, in previous trials, uh, you know, had, had been very effective. Um, but, uh, but you, I mean, you had a perinatal pathologist. Uh, yeah, we, we did, and I think um, uh, Rudesky's track record of testifying 95 to 99 percent for the defense coming in and, you know, doing just exactly what he did here, coming in and trying to convince a jury that either the doctors did everything right or if they didn't, um, it didn't impact the death. Uh, and, and I got a little aggravated with the guy, you know, and I said, this, this man who calls himself a pediatrician yet doesn't hesitate to spend a good part of his professional life testifying against children, testifying against families who've lost children. Do you need really to know right, much right. more about this guy? Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back for one second to uh, your grief expert, because I, I was thinking about this as I was reading. I've, uh, now, I've used in, you know, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist in cases where there's been uh, PTSD and things like that. But I don't think I've ever really used somebody who was a, an expert, you know, on grief. Um, and, and, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you chose this expert. And, and um, does, does he then um, examine both of your clients in order to uh, come up with his opinions on, on what they're dealing with, with regard to the death of their child? He does, and uh, he, he meets with both of them, talks to them, uh, um, analyzes everything, takes notes, uh, copious notes, good notes, which he refers to when he's talking to the jury. And I had met him, uh, I was on the Florida Board of Bar Examiners, which is the group that admits lawyers to practice in Florida, and he was one of the consultants to the board on issues of drugs and alcohol. And I got to know him a little bit then. He was uh, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida and uh, got to know him. And asked him, have you ever testified in a death case before? Because one of the things he did uh, at Gainesville was to uh, help uh, talk about death with medical students uh, who, you know, didn't really have much experience uh, dealing with it. Because if you're going to become a doctor in a lot of specialties, you're going to be dealing with death. So you need to have some frame to process all that information. So I thought, you know, this guy could be good. And he was great. I mean, juries just, just love my abused him in trial probably seven or eight times, and uh, the defense tries to attack him. I say, well, doctor, uh, uh, you call yourself a grief expert, and uh, it's true, isn't it, that uh, the only people you've testified for in, in, in these cases are the plaintiffs. Right. And, and Mike says, you know, that's generally because they're the ones who agree. <laughs> right, right. 
Yikes. We used to tell defense lawyers, yeah, yeah, hey, look, guys, if your insurance company is grieving and you want to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine him coming in and, and evaluating some plaintiff to say you know, they're not really grieving. I mean, that's a that, that would be tough. So yeah, that's the kind of uh, expert you're only going to see on one side of cases. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, he's there primarily to explode the myths. Yeah, about time healing all wounds and they're going to get over it, and uh, and he does it very very effectively. You don't have that issue in Georgia. I've actually got a child death case in Georgia, so I'm uh, uh, kind of exploring how to argue those uh, those damages because they're entirely different. Right. Than what right. But you, you've gotten some excellent verdicts in uh, in Georgia in in child death cases. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, there can be. I mean, now medical malpractice cases, uh, I'm sure you know, is are extremely difficult cases. But um, but uh, you know, there are there are cases when you um, um, you know, can get the you know right set of facts and and um, and uh, have a you know plaintiffs that are um, it, you know just very good people who really just need help and and um, and we we have had some um, very good results in Georgia. Um, I, I wanted to I wanted to point out I I thought one of the really good themes I saw in your closing was when you were talking about damages and when you were talking about the um, emotional suffering that they were going going through and you sort of came up with this theme of uh, etched in their memories forever and then that was sort of how you started every paragraph of etched in their memories forever is when he was giving CP, when, you know, Dole was giving CPR to his son and then, you know, etched in his memory forever is, is feeling, um, Levi go limp in her arms. And, and I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that theme. And, and, uh, was that something that you came up uh, with through, uh, focus grouping or just, uh, kicking it around with your partners or how, how did you do that? Yeah, I, I think it was a ladder and, uh, you wanted to walk through it kind of slowly and uh, kind of build up to the, to, to the, you know, the final really, really sad thing was them in the hospital room with a family all gathered around uh, Levi with a doctor there telling them it's time and, you know, etched in their memories forever. The, the moment that life support was disconnected and etched in their memories forever will be the time, you know, they're holding this little boy and feeling him breathe for the last time. You know, I mean, that's stuff, <laughs> that's powerful stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think, I, you know, I think the jury got it, you know, you know, we had a good jury. I think most juries uh, would get that and the horror of just having to do that with a child because they've gone from the zenith of happiness to the absolute pits six days later of depression. So, yeah. Well, uh, it, it, I also thought it was, you know, I mean, cause not only, you know, going from, you know, the happiest day of your life of having your first child to uh, then, you know, where this all happens, but then you, you, you talked about how, you know, they got their hopes up again because they were able to get a pulse back and they were able to resuscitate uh, Levi. So then there's that hope again of um, uh, that, you know, it may be everything's okay. And then only just to be told again, um, that no, everything's not okay. And that, uh, and that you're going to have to discontinue life support. 
um, just really, I, I thought the way you did that in closing just really, put, you know, put us in the place of going through that roller coaster of um, of emotions that uh, that they obviously were going through. Well, yeah, and it really was a roller coaster because they told by they were told by Penrod, you know, he's fine, uh, no real no real concerns, and and they believed them. And then, of course, what followed that was just something that. Uh, nobody should have to go through, and it was totally unexpected. You know, they never, you know, the worst thing about these things is, is when they're unexpected. You know, if, if a baby is born with crippling uh, genetic defects that people tell you, you know, he's only going to live a week, you got some time to prepare yourself. I mean, it's horrible, but, it, but, you know, they had no clue. They had no clue. And that's one of the things that uh, factors into how profound the grief is. Did, did, uh, did you have a chance uh, um, to say goodbye uh, to the baby? Were you able to prepare yourself? The, 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 the stupidity of, uh, and the horror of losing a child, not through an act of God, but through medical carelessness? I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah. So that's, those are the themes that uh, uh, we used in this case that I think resonated to some extent. Yeah, yeah, and I should point out that the, one of the other things you, uh, your grief expert talked about was the irrational guilt that, that they were suffering, that they were somehow responsible for the death of their child for uh, not disbelieving the doctor when he said everything was fine. Yeah, and that, that's, that's not uncommon in, uh, in these cases. And uh, you can argue till you're blue in the face that folks, you know, logically, rationally, <laughs> the worst thing you did is to believe the doctor, which is what everybody else in that same situation would have done because that's, you know, that's what you wanted to believe. And, and, and who was, who better to believe than the Dean of Pediatrics of Leon County? Yeah. What did you, um, what did you do with the parents, your clients on the stand and um, what did the defense do with them? If, if anything? Oh, uh, well, the defense, uh, they, they, they wise, I can't remember much of what they did. Um, with Julie, the mom, I, I kind of walked her through it. And she was, she was amazingly strong. The dad was like a lot of men, you know, that can't emote, can't articulate, um, wants, uh, everything's fine, you know, I'm over it kind of, kind of thing. Uh, so we, you know, the, he just didn't have yeah. a lot to say. And so we, keep him on the stand very long. She though, we kept her on the stand and she read that poem that uh, uh, she had written, or not a poem, but, but the uh, a little uh, blurb that she'd written that was read at Levi's funeral. And that was cool, that was powerful. And, and I read that you know, to the jury in closing. Um, tears were flowing, everybody kind of got it. Because, uh, you know, it was written from the heart. It wasn't written with the expectation that five or six years later, it would be read to a yeah. jury in a courtroom. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, w one other question I had was, um, I saw that you had sent them a an offer of judgment uh, for the policy limits. And so I'm, I'm wondering, after the verdict, was there, uh, was there a motion for attorney's fees and costs and things like that? Uh, there was, and uh, ultimately we ended up settling for 
I want to say, you know, I, I don't remember the exact amount. Uh, we, we, we didn't get uh, the entire amount, but we got paid and didn't have to put up with two or three years or more of appeals. Right. And uh, and Joe, Julie and Dole were were very happy, and uh, you know, it, it took a lot of financial care. And, and they're good people, responsible people. So uh, so uh, so ultimately, the decision of theirs. Uh, not to offer us anything, uh, work to our benefit. Yeah. Uh, well, Gary, this has been just a great uh, discussion. And, uh, you know, when, with what was obviously a very difficult trial in a very difficult venue and a, and a uh, great result, is there anything else about the trial that you wanted to make sure our listeners uh, have heard that, that we haven't talked about? Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there, there was only one other point, guys, that I wanted to uh, uh, mention. I think we've covered most of it. But in terms of um, uh, looking for themes that uh, will resonate with a jury, things that, uh, you know, we always try to figure out what attitudes uh, is the average man or woman walking into the courtroom uh, uh, with. And we try to capitalize on whatever they are. Uh, if they're helpful for us, and one of the um, one of those themes is that um, doctors, doctors like the rest of us don't have to be perfect, but they have to be reasonable, and they have to more importantly try their best. And does anybody believe in this case that these doctors, when it came to Levi Slayton, tried their best? tried their hardest? The answer is no. All they had to do, all Dr. Penrod had to do was pick up the phone, spend 30 seconds calling the hospital, telling them to expect the patient was going to be there in 15 or 30 minutes, mm -hmm. and that these were the issues and be sure he gets into it. That's all it took. You know, he didn't even have to go to the damn hospital. All he had to do uh, was to make the call. And if he didn't want to make the call, all he had to do was tell Julie, Take Levi to the hospital now. Right. And that's all it would have taken. Did he use all of his 30 years of experience in, in, in examining and managing the care of this boy? The answer is no. And he didn't try his best. And when doctors don't try their best, that's not using reasonable care. That's negligence. And that's kind of the point that, uh, uh, you know, we use in this case and use in most cases. I mean, I've yet to... Yeah. I'll practice case where I can honestly say that really tried their hardest, right. you know, really brought all of their training and experience to bear and did their level best. And it was still malpractice. You know? Yeah. No. I mean, what happened here is he, he was playing the odds, you know, that, that, that uh, Levi wasn't uh, catastrophically ill and it wouldn't, wouldn't be a big deal and uh, could attend to it later. Just an irrational, careless, sloppy decision. The cost these folks, uh, you know, their firstborn. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, uh, I wrote down that theme when you, uh, now that you mentioned it, and I wish I had uh, mentioned it earlier, but I, I, I wrote those exact words down. You don't have to be perfect. You need to be reasonable. 
because uh, I really like that. And then, um, and then also the theme of that you just don't take chances. You know, when you see these signs, you know, pick up the phone, call, put them in the hospital, and you know, and you go on, and and he'd be fine right now. Uh, but yeah, those that was uh, uh, really really great work, and in, in theming that case, especially in what we were uh, have already talked about, was a very difficult venue. Well, thanks, guys. I've enjoyed, uh, enjoyed our visit and appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about the case. Yeah, well, uh, we, we've had just a great discussion. And let me remind everybody that we've been talking to Gary Fox. Uh, Gary is a, a partner at Stuart Tillman, Fox, Bianchi, and Kane in Miami, Florida. And you can look up Gary at stfblaw.com. That's STF as in Fox blaw.com and the case that we've been talking about is Slayton versus uh, Professional Park Pediatrics and Dr. James Penrod uh, in Leon County, Florida that was tried back in 2007 and um, resulted I may have the the numbers a little bit wrong but it sounds like the verdict was right around $4 million uh, for Julie and Dole Slayton and uh, we've really appreciated your time Gary Yes, thank you Gary My pleasure, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.